Welcome to the Hope Collective Message Podcast, where we find a confident expectation of a better tomorrow in the character and promises of God. To learn more about who we are, visit thehopeco.com. Here's today's message. So we go to God's Word that we'll be sharing from this morning in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives us some of the greatest teachings of his time. Verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. How many know that's true? not always the way you envisioned it or pictured it. That's us trying to be God. But definitely in regards to his word, he always responds. Verse nine, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? That'd be rude. That was my part right there. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, he says, so, here's the the morsel. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, knowing they may never do it back. But it's not why you do it. How many people has Jesus died for that will never return that love? Many will reject it. And and without the paragraph break in Scripture, read right from that. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Enter through the narrow gate. Meaning, this ain't going to be easy. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many many will enter through it, meaning many will choose to do for their own selves and disregard others. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. You know what leads to life? Magnifying Jesus by doing to others what you would have them do to you. That's magnifying. It meant the world to Jesus. It was at the top of his list of concern before he died on a cross that we would be one, that we would be unified. And that happens when we do to each other what we would have each other do to us. This is going to be crucial for our conversation today. God, we want to magnify you. But we know that the best way to show we love you is to love those you love. And so God we come and confess that we have not done to others what we would have them do to you. Not even today, not even this week, not in this last month or these last couple years have we even come close to living this out and we repent. And we say, sorry, God, we don't wanna be like that because you were not like that to us. And so for that reason, Christ be magnified in us. And as we invite your Holy Spirit to come into this space, God, transform our hearts. Teach us your word and your ways, and we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Good morning. (laughs) I feel led to say something off the bat. I didn't in last service, but I want to say it in this service for some reason. It's important. Whenever God does that, I just tried to obey. Um, For those of you who will hear what is said throughout the next five weeks and fully agree, um, your encouragement is meaningful. And yet there are things that we need to learn too. For those of you who will not agree and this will be diff- difficult, would you just know that we love you? And we can't say everything we need to say in 30 minutes of a, of a conversation. And would you please be willing to lean in and hear the deeper heart. Because this is more about being everything that Jesus has asked us to be 
and what that looks like and means for you and for this world in which we live. And that it's actually good. It's actually really good. And so would, would we be able to extend grace to each other? We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Here's what's, here's what's driving the conversation, if I, can, if I can be bold. The very thing that Jesus was most concerned about in his final prayer with his disciples was unity. It was unity. God, make them one as you and I are one so that the world will know that you sent me. And it oftentimes in the church seems to be the thing we're less concerned about. And yet I would say that unity is mission critical for the church. I would say unity is mission critical. I would also say this church, and I want you to hear my heart, that we have an enemy of our soul called the devil who does not want us to follow Jesus and wants us to be divided. If the very thing that God wants, that Jesus was on his heart in that prayer was unity, then the very thing the enemy of our soul will try to do is divide that unity. So what he's done is he has handed two biblical truths to the Republicans and two biblical truths to the Democrats. And though we laugh, it is dividing us. It is destroying us. And it's time to take back from politics what was never theirs to begin with. They do not have the right to play God, neither one of them. God has the right to play God. And as we let him do that, can we love each other in a way that's meaningful? Doesn't mean it looks like agreement. Doesn't mean it's not intense. But it's meaningful. Kingdom over politics. Can I tell you something that's true? Uh, this isn't a series that was developed in the last few weeks as a result of what's going on culturally. Actually, this specific series, Kingdom over Politics, and how this will shape out over the next five weeks. Um, was developed over the last four months, and the conversation about when to do it has been the last three years. <laughs> so we've been talking about this for a while and feeling like it's time to have the conversation because we're going to make an assumption that we're all mature, adult, men and women who are going to put our big boy girl and big boy girl, big boy girl <laughs> pants on. I got it. Boy, that could have been messed up really quick. And do something the world just cannot seem to do because we're the church. Because we're the church. And so never had more, never, I've actually never had more feedback around a series before it even started. <laughs> Put it out there a couple weeks ago, kingdom over politics and boy. Let me tell you, the gamut exists in this room. There are some that would say, about time. About time you talk, and you don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's true, but it's about time. Let's talk in five weeks, right? Because we're going to talk about it. And on the other gamut is... I can't believe you're talking about it. How dare you talk about it? Can I expound on that one just a little bit more in, in a bit? This was one of the questions somebody asked. Are you scared? I said, no. I mean, initially I said, yes. And then I said, no, actually, you know what? I'm not, a, all my life, and I don't know if it was how I was raised or something God put in me. I've just wanted to know truth. Even if it spoke against the way I live, the way I think or the way I believe, even if it made me uncomfortable, I've just always loved. I've wanted to know truth. It's, it goes along with what Alex said a couple weeks ago. We, we live in a world that wants to pursue happiness instead of truth. And so our truth is on the basis of our happiness. Well, that's flawed. It doesn't work that way. And so, no, I'm not scared. I'm not scared because, because truth is truth and it's just good for us. I love that. They said, are you nervous? I said, heck yes. I'm nervous. I can admit that one. Are you nervous? Here's why I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Thank you. I'm nervous because I don't think everybody in the room is mature enough to handle this conversation. So I'm nervous about that. I don't think we act like adults enough. So that makes me nervous. 
I'd say I'm, I'm also nervous um, because we don't know how to disagree. We actually really stink at that. I grew up in a culture that was good at disagreeing. We had great conversation around apologetics and defending our faith and what was true and not true. And I actually grew in my faith as a result of talking to people that disagreed with me. I learned a lot about God in that, and so did they. So I'm nervous because we just don't know how to do that. If I don't say what you want me to say, you're going to be angry instead of lean in. What you don't realize is you're angry because God's pointing at something. And he needs you to lean in. And we need you to lean in. Not, not because we want to change you, but because God wants to transform us. And we love you. I hope you hear that. I'm also nervous because I think so much of what we believe and have opinions and thoughts around are tied to an identity that isn't rooted in Christ. It's rooted in your politics. It's rooted in your culture. It's rooted in your family of origin. It's rooted in your experiences. And those just aren't reality. When our, when, when, our, when our identity is rooted in Christ, it changes the way we interact. It just does. So we'll talk about that. But let's set some guidelines for ourselves if we can, and here's the biggest one. It's love. If this is kingdom over politics, the kingdom's best representation is love. Politics' best representation is power oftentimes when it's negative, right? It's love. And here's what I mean about love. I think I mean what Jesus means and nothing about what this world defines it as, okay? It's not conditional on any level. It's fully unconditional, and it's based on the fact that you were created in the image of God, and so every person my physical eye sees is deeply loved by God, and because God loved me that way, I want to love you that way. And it's this love that champions not what I see on the outside or what you say or do, but the heart that I know is on the inside that I desperately want to get to know. Find out why you believe what you believe, say what you say, and do what you do. That I get really curious that we don't have to agree. We can even passionately disagree, but we will not disrespect each other. Did you feel the in that? I wanted you to feel that. That was my dad voice. Okay, I've never used that before. I mean, I have at home, right? Yeah, see, like, so like, trigger. <laughs> oh, dear Lord Jesus. What if we could model? Not because we're awesome. But because we love Jesus and Jesus loves us, what if we could model a way of conversing that culture has forgotten? What if we could model a way of conversing that comes from an identity that's rooted in Christ and not what we believe or think about anything, but just whose we are? And what if we could hear truth and if we don't agree, still share a meal together? Here's a question for all of us to process. And if you don't get this right, we don't get this right. This is where it goes wrong. Does my theology from my politics, here's the question. Does my theology inform my politics and my culture? Or does my political views and cultural context inform my theology? Theology is the, the study of the nature of God. What I believe or think about God, that is theology. Does what I believe and think about God is, is, is what is truth informing what I believe about the world around me, my culture, my politics, my experiences, my family, or does all of that inform what I believe about God? And here's the problem is because there's a failure of discipleship in the church because we got more consumeristic than discipled, right? Because there's biblical illiteracy, meaning we run from this because we might be afraid of it because we assume something it's not. So there's biblical illiteracy, not realizing that this is the thing that can direct your life in the greatest possible way. And we don't even know how to begin and so we have this biblical literacy. Or because we've not placed ourselves in community with people who love Jesus and think differently than we do so we can be transformed through community that discerns and heals and grows us. But we just want to put ourselves with like-minded tribes so we can just elevate our level of rage. Right? 
then our culture and our politics and our family of origin will be misconstrued as our theology and we'll let what we think and believe about God inform it. Instead Instead of what is true about God inform everything else. This must be the lens that we see through. This has to inform it all. As uncomfortable as it may get. Okay. Scripture. Truth. What is true about God must inform all of it. And it also must inform not just what I believe, but how I treat others that don't believe what I believe. We say this all the time in the church. In the essentials, in the things that are black and white of Scripture, unity. In the non-essentials, where it's just not clear, but there's good arguments on both sides of the conversation, and we'll still share a meal together. So in the, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty, some freedom. And in everything, charity, love. I hope you understand today that you're sitting in a church that loves you. Because we've been loved by God. And so we're trying not to do that out of our strength, but out of his. And we'll get it wrong. And sometimes it won't feel like love. And I'm sorry for that. I've gotten this wrong in my life. Sometimes I've been too judgmental. And I represent a church that came out of a culture of judgmentalism. And if you were wounded by that, would you forgive us? Because that's not the church. But there's still truth. That is for our good. And if we continue on the path we're on, we cannot be the answer to Jesus' prayer of unity, but we will stay divided. So we go to Matthew and we read this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and prophets. Meaning, do to others what you would have them do to you, knowing they may never do it back. But that's why you do it. And that's what Jesus did for us. And then in Matthew chapter 22, somebody says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus expounds on this, do to others as you would have them do to you by telling you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where it starts. Fall in love with him. Get crazy head over heels for him and let who he is and what he says about you just radically transform you so that you're not resistant to this, but you're resistant to everything else because it's keeping you from this. It's not bad news. It's good news. The problem is our delivery is bad news. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first greatest commandment. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus goes on um, in John's account, and he says to his disciples, he even narrows it more. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples by the way in which you love one another. But I love you this way, therefore love others that way. You know what we're talking about today before we talk about the stuff that we're going to talk about? It's civility. Learning to to be civil with each other in a way that treats the person around you as a human being. Deeply and dearly loved by God. Our goal isn't the pursuit of happiness. It's the pursuit of truth. Not my truth. Not your truth. Not culture's truth. Thank God. Not my political party's truth. Not what we think scripture says about truth, but truth, God's truth. What will make this possible is our ability to be grounded in our identity first. For first for ourselves and then for others. What's going to make civility possible is that we're grounded in our identity first and then for others. You, you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Listen, the moment that I allow my politics, my culture, my family origin, my experiences, my lies inform who I am, be what I define myself as, then I will get angry and mad whenever anything comes against that narrative because it's coming against me. But when I realize something different than that, I not only understand things differently, but I treat you differently because you're like me. And we're going to get deeper into this, but culturally, we might be over-adapting to the identity narrative. you got to be true to yourself. you got to feel good about yourself. It's possible that we've started to adapt the gospel and turn it into something where Jesus makes you feel good about yourself. Jesus isn't here to boost your self-esteem or make you feel good about yourself. He's here to tell you your true self. 
then he'll tell you your true self by revealing your false self. And he'll reveal your false self through pain and suffering. So we got to get a better theology of pain and suffering and get off the pursuing happiness and get into pursuing Jesus. Because I want to know who I am in Jesus, not who I am in this world. When Christ's love becomes your identity, it reorders all your loves. It demotes all other identities without defacing them. Listen, I need you to get this. This is really, it demotes all other. When Christ becomes my first love, all other loves pale in comparison to that love. And it demotes all other identities, but the identity of God's son, God's daughter, deeply, dearly loved by God, on whom his favor rests. Woo! It demotes me as a dad. I'm not a dad who's a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus who's a dad. So that when I fail as a dad, I am not destroyed. But I can go to my kids and say, I am sorry. Have I ever apologized? All the time. (laughs) And I still can say, hey, I'm a great follower of Jesus who's just a dad. I'm not a husband who's a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus who's a husband. I'm not a white man who's a follower of Jesus or a black man who's a follower of Jesus. But we are followers of Jesus who happen to be white and who happen to be black. Those things are all demoted in the sight of the fact that I'm God's and it changes the way I interact completely. It doesn't deface them. I am just not defined by them and the conversation will not be controlled by them. Your greatest pride is who you are in Christ. Takes everything else down a notch. I'm not as upset about all this because I'm a kingdom person, not a culture person. If you're a culture person, if you're a political person, then it's going to rock your world. But if you're not, you're trusting Jesus anyway. Okay. Everybody breathe in. Breathe out. It's probably more for me than you. The two enemies of civility, and I want you to hear this, are me allowing my beliefs outside of God to become my identity, or me allowing your beliefs to become yours. Because every time, it will change the conversation to the thing we don't want it to change to. It'll take love out of the equation, and it'll put you in the middle. But I can realize that my conversation is always driven by a deeper understanding of who I am. And therefore, how I treat you is driven by a deeper understanding of who you are. Whether you've stepped into relationship with Jesus or not, you're a potential child and son of God, daughter of God. Because if my identity is outside of Christ and rooted in my culture or my politics, then when you threaten my politics or culture, you threaten me. It's the problem we're having today. I'm going to say it again. Two enemies of civility are me allowing my beliefs outside of God to become my identity or me allowing your beliefs to become yours. Why? Because if my identity is outside of Christ and rooted in my culture or my politics, then when you threaten my culture or my politics or culture, you threaten me. In church, that's not reality. People aren't threatening you. And if they are, then your identity is fragile. Get in Jesus and get durable. Be able to have the hard conversations. Let's model this for the world. I'm not mad. It's just a lie. There's only one person that can name you, and that's Jesus. Our sense of worth and value must be based on our creation in the image of God. And how I treat others must be based on our creation in the image of God. And as image bearers, we are part of a different kingdom. We are strangers and aliens and exiles and kingdom people, not of this world. Jesus doesn't want to be a value-add proposition that fits into your political view where it's convenient. He is your political view if you're a follower of Jesus. Everything comes through the grid of this. So we got to know it. And the only way we can know it is to spend time with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and people who love Jesus and love the word more than you do. And we'll discover that, man, it's transformative. Not by yourself. 
Why? Because at its best, politics is meant to help us negotiate collective and collaborative human flourishing. At its best, at its worst, it's often a power trip. But at its best, politics is meant to help us negotiate collective and collaborative human flourishing. It ought to come along to support who we want to be in Jesus. And when it doesn't, we should leave it. And not some American idea of human flourishing, but a biblical idea of human flourishing. God has a design. God has a plan. God sees how it should operate. God loves you. God wants what's best for you. God's working in you. God's transforming you. God is allowing it to come. So let it be. Is it hot in here? Feels like it. Not to be divided by our politics but united by our core belief that everyone our physical eye sees is deeply loved by God and made in his image. Who do you think wants human flourishing, real human flourishing? Who wants that, God or the enemy of your soul? God does. The enemy of your soul wants you to be living in a false sense of human flourishing because salvation is the process of becoming human. Everything God designed us to be, the world we live in and sin is the pulling of our humanity away. It's the dehumanizing. It's why the enemy is doing what he's doing in this world and in our lives. What makes all of this work? What brings human flourishing to the forefront? Church, dialogue. Caring enough. Being durable enough to sit down and go deeper into the heart of people's lives. And understand what makes them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? I cannot dehumanize anyone and I can't allow them to be dehumanized. That's justice. That's what it looks like. And if we lose created in the image of God, we lose it all. How I treat people that think differently than I do, how do I treat people comes from the place that I believe everyone is made in the image of God. I don't just look at Amy and say, Man, Amy is George's wife. No, Amy is God's daughter. And how I speak to her and talk to her isn't because she's a friend or George's wife, but because she's Amy, and that's God's daughter, and that's God's son. And I talk to them from that place. Early Christianity changed the culture. The early church and the teachings of Jesus brought about choice. Did you know that? Jesus came into a culture that would force you to do everything that you did or you didn't fit in, or you were kicked out, or you were, it was this pressure culture. Jesus says, no, love demands a choice. You get to choose. But if you choose, then you also pay the consequences of your choice. Christianity changed the culture. The early church and the teachings of Jesus brought about the value of children. Did you know in biblical times, if they didn't want the child because it was the wrong sex or because it had a deformity, they would take it to the edge of the woods and leave it, hoping the animals would come and devour it. Do you know the early church began a rescue ministry to those kids? Do you know that's where orphanages come from? Do you know the early church and the teachings of Jesus are responsible for the value of women in today's culture? Did you know the early church and the teachings of Jesus is responsible for hospitals? Did you know the early church and the teachings of Jesus is responsible for higher and lower education? Do your research. Did you know that Jesus, the teachings of Jesus in the early church is responsible for science because most of the early scientists were Christians? Do you know the teachings of Jesus and the early church brought concepts of government that were committed to human flourishing, not power over? The teachings of Jesus in the early church brought the idea of justice and the modern capacity to actually dialogue, and the list goes on. The teachings of Jesus in the church... When are we going to stop looking like the culture and start being the church? The teachings of Jesus hasn't changed. What's at stake if we don't get this right is real human flourishing. I've got people saying, man, don't talk about this. Church shouldn't be talking about this. I got to tell you, that sounds a lot like the devil's voice. Can, can, I, just, can I just don't talk about it? If the plan of the enemy, if, if Jesus' prayer was unity of his church, that we would be one as Christ is one, that was his plan. And we're sitting here right now, day and age, when it appears as if this side has two true biblical truths and this side has two biblical truths and we're not seeing our way together at all and the enemy is flaunting it, shouldn't we talk about it? 
Speak up about it. Stop letting the devil lie. Expose it. I think we have to. I think we have to. We have to get together. We have to talk. You might tell me something I don't know, and I might tell you something you don't know, and the Holy Spirit together might tell us both something either one of us knew. Guys, it's powerful. The you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed political view. I want you to hear this. My friend Andy Stanley said this. The you beside you is more precious than your potentially flawed political view. And we are, we are abusing people with our views. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He came to take over hearts, broken lives, to be Lord. And you can trust him. And I pray to God you'll be able to trust this church. See, the church is not to be found at the center of left-right political world. The church is to be a species of its own kind, confounding both left and right, and finding its identity from the center of God's life. Kingdom over politics. See, there's definitely been a disruption, church, in the culture in which we lived in. The culture I grew up in, the most disruptive thing is that there's always been about 20% of the culture that's devout, devout, and they have Christian ethics, Christian view of morality and sexuality and racism and, and the poor and the marginalized. But probably 80% of the culture when I grew up were nominal Christians, meaning they went to church on Christmas and Easter. We call them priesters around here. <laughs> Said they were Methodist, Presbyterian, or Catholic, and it wasn't very deep, but they held the Christian views that we held, that 20%. They were like an umbrella, a shelter, so to be an orthodox evangelical or Catholic and have these views of things didn't look that weird like it does today because 70 to 80% of the population had the same view of marriage and sexuality and things like that. Yeah. I'm telling you what's happening in our world today and why it's happening. So when that's gone away, what's gone away is inherited religion. Inherited religion, and this is research sociologically, inherited religion is dying. Not chosen religion, not religion based on conversion, but inherited religion where you're born into it. My family is Methodist. My family is Protestant. My family is Catholic. I went to church growing up. That's going away. Young people are saying, unless I choose it, it's not mine. Nobody can choose my religion for me. Young people, I would tell you, don't choose religion ever. Choose Jesus. Just find a place that loves Jesus and follow that. So the idea that you're born into a Catholic family or a Presbyterian family is going away. And that's the reason why the mainline churches, the evangelical churches and Catholic churches collapsing. And so what you have is these devout people that look pretty much the same. Still that 20% of people are devout and still really devout, but now they look really weird. And in fact, they look dangerous. And they look strange because that protective covering of that 70 to 80% is gone. So we are more ostracized and more estranged from the culture. And now we're seeing political polarization. And before I weigh into this, I want you to understand something. I cannot in 30 minutes in five weeks cover this and catch every nuance. And you're going to come up with some. I left here for service and went into the lobby and I heard a lot of them. What about this? And yeah, but this. And I would say, yeah, and that's all. Isn't it great that you came to talk about it? Can we talk about it? I'm not afraid of the questions. I'm excited about the questions. And there are nuances to what I'm about to say right now that I know you hold. And I want to hold them with you. I know you struggle with. And we want to struggle with you. See, deconstruction is a big thing right now. But it's not trendy. It's actually historic. It's always been happening. Stop making like it's new. But deconstruction without healthy reconstruction is destruction. You got to do that within a community of people who don't think like you do. If you surround yourself with a bunch of people who think like you, you only elevate the things that aren't necessarily right about you. But community does something powerful and different. So the political polarization that is happening now is a major challenge for the church. That's why this series was hard to receive before we started. Here's my reading of the Bible. My reading of the Bible says that Christians ought to be sold out for racial justice. All races are equal. What happened in Buffalo yesterday is a travesty that we ought to mourn. 
and be angry about that injustice that exists in an 18-year-old life. My reading the Bible says that Christians ought to be sold out for racial justice, that we're all made in the image of God. They should be deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized, whether they're at a border or not. They should be pro-life from the womb to the tomb. They should believe, at least for Christians, that sex should only be between a man and a woman in marriage. And those four things, the early church was marked by them. We know that. Man, Satan's having a heyday. Do you see it? Two of those look very conservative and two of those things look very liberal. And so right now what's happening, since those four things are never combined in any political party, they aren't combined in any institution but Catholic social teaching and biblical Christianity. So what happens is there's an enormous pressure everywhere in this country for churches to major in two of them and remain quiet in two of them. So there's huge pressure in Chicago to talk about racial, racial justice and caring about the poor and everybody applauds. But if you say that we're pro-life or we think sex should be between a man and a woman in marriage, then people are going to protest and leave. It's immaturity. It's our identity in the wrong thing. It's not the church. In the Bible Belt South, though, if a pastor starts to preach about all four of these things, a lot of people are going to get nervous about the racial justice and the poverty thing because there's a sense that you're getting a little too liberal on us. What are you doing? You can't talk about that. What? Why is it that over two-thirds of the passages in Scripture about authority talk about following your spiritual authority two times more than following your governmental authority, but we will sacrifice to our government and not follow spiritual And so if spiritual authority that God has put in charge, like it or not, is coming and saying, this is a conversation that we have to have, could we not say we shouldn't be having this? We should be. And we should be modeling how to have it, whether we end up agreeing or not. It seems there's a kind of red evangelism and blue evangelism, and almost everywhere I see people play up two of them and play down two of them and even stop believing in two of them. And that's because they're a package deal. The political party says you can't have them together to be a Democrat or Republican or to be Fox News or MSNBC. I said it. (laughs) You just can't have those things together. Stop watching both. How do you be committed to the whole range? That's the early church. It's actually biblical. We cannot get cold feet on any of this, church. There's no biblical warrant. We get excited about what the Bible says about justice, but we don't get excited about what the Bible says about sexuality. At that point, you're letting the culture animate you, not the Bible. Immerse yourself in the word. They go together. Amos chapter 2, verse 7 in the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, right there. It says this in verse 7. God talking about what the people are doing before he punishes them. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. We're like, man, injustice. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. One verse sexual sin and economic injustice. The Bible sees it as one cloth that go together. We live in a culture that's trying to rip it apart. Kingdom over politics. It's time to take back from politics what they stole from the Bible. What's dividing us? Civility at its core is due to others as you would have them do to you. I grew up in a school that had that posted as the golden rule. the grounding for all civilized society, but I want you to hear me. Your credibility only goes as far as your civility. Whether you agree with that or not doesn't matter. There are people walking away from you because of your lack of civility. There are people walking towards people who have civility, who understands what it means to respect someone because they're made in the image of God. Because every person your physical eye sees is deeply loved by God. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But I'm going to say it again. Your credibility only goes as far as your civility. And when it comes to this church, we will be civil 
or you will not be credible. Because this is biblical. Civility is not a governmental term. It's not a political term. It's a Jesus term. It's due to others as you would have them do to you. But let's go one step further than civility, and I'll close with this. And that may feel like something, but it actually is pretty deep, so get ready. How should we go about dealing with our ever-widening differences in the church? Some of us in the room advocate for a new civility, one that seeks to dig out one another's humanity from underneath the mountains of memes we now use to punctuate our preferred political positions. People notice, guys. Even if it's trying to be subtle politically on your Instagram or Facebook, it's obvious. Sometimes if we lead with that, we lose credibility. Others of us clamor for all-out war on the enemy (laughs) with whom we live daily or see at holidays or worship alongside of weekly. And from where I sit, our raging incivility or our very cool civility isn't very effective in keeping children out of cages at a border or families out of poverty or your aunt from refusing to to come home for Christmas because your grandfather's preferred news outlet. Which begs the question, is there a third option between civility and incivility that we're too emotionally dysregulated or cynically withdrawn to recognize? So I offer it. In his initial correspondence to the early church, the Christian community in Corinth, the Apostle Paul famously invoked communion as a way of bringing this just jointed first century community together. Imagine that. Community. Communion, disjointed, together. (laughs) Here he is, writing from the nearby city of Ephesus, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul ends the paragraph, rather crazy. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's serious. See, the gospel of Luke's account at the same meal echoes Paul's earlier treatment. And he did the same with the cup after supper saying, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Again, this is Jesus talking. The closing line, this time from Jesus is telling, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me and his hand is on the table. Everybody went, in my hand, my hand is on the table, right? Follow me, stay with me. For most of my life, whenever folks attempted to prove Jesus' divinity, they would typically talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That if somebody can predict their death, pull it off, predict their death and resurrection and then pull it off, they're probably, that's the miracle, right? But then I read about how Jesus ate a whole meal with people who had known him for years and still misunderstood what he was trying to do and why he was trying to do it, and what it meant for them and everyone else. And one of them was so desperately misguided and politically motivated that he even sold Jesus out for money. Yet there Jesus is eating with them. I've come to realize that the Last Supper isn't some boring intro that we survive once a a month or on Sundays during prayer in order to remember some other miraculous part of Jesus' life, that communion is the miraculous part. The fact that a God, which is what we believe Jesus is in the flesh, could stand to be misunderstood to the point of death by 12 people who would then be responsible to carry on his work after he was gone is beyond amazing. Stay with me. In that rented room 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem before the haze and lights and sound of Easter, which I love. We find out that the Christian God is totally okay with people missing the point about who he is and what he's here to do. It seems like he even sort of expects it. And as a matter of fact, he doesn't try to talk Judas out of it. He just lets him go. Matter of fact, he says, go do what you gotta do. Perhaps then Jesus' invitation to do this over bread and wine wasn't to hermeneutically 
meaning interpretation of scripture, seal his words and actions behind a secret veil of professionalism, theology, and traditionalism? What if instead the do this is for the whole of humanity to look one another in the eyes over good bread and better wine as a way of bringing all of us concretely back to the realization that there is something elemental about the fact that we all live on bread and wine, even if we give up or give in or misunderstand the way of Jesus. We all need food and water to survive. We are humans. Or if we have different political ideas that cause us to sell him out again and again. Real civility is communion. Communion is a practice of demanding that followers of a misunderstood God engage in concrete solidarity across generation, tradition, political identity, geography, theology, social economic status, ethnicity, and what Paul later called the dividing wall of hostility in order to bring a whole new world into being together. What if the thing you need to do with the person you oppose most is invite them to your table and break bread? And remind both of yourselves that you're human and you started in the same place. A world that begins with bread, wine, and a shared commitment to surviving difference together, not by ignoring it or sacrificing it, but by looking it square in the eye and washing its feet and passing the plate because he washed Judas' feet and he washed Peter's feet and he washed the feet of 12 men who would leave him in the midst of his crisis, who thought the best political idea was that he be a conquering Messiah, not a dying servant. Oh, how good he is. i close. What sounds more like Jesus to you? Only participating in religious rituals with people who have the appropriate credentials? <laughs> or breaking bread and pouring wine with people who sold you out and abandoned you and constantly misunderstood you and your motives? These days, it seems as if our polarized and violent civilization could use more followers of Jesus radically committed to bravely, bravely eating with difference even if the difference is almost impossible to bear. To commune together, even when there's good reason for withdrawn civility and hostile incivility, seems a pretty miraculously unlikely experience and one that requires a lot of faith and identity and love. Which is probably why the church has spent the majority of its time, its life, projecting or protecting the metaphor of communion instead of practicing its meaning. Not going to be able to do all this in 30 minutes each week. Some of you are saying, well, I was 45, Dave. No. <laughs> but I wonder if we could make a pledge together as we close and we sing this song. Are we singing this song? I feel like we could sing this song. Here's the pledge. And we'll post this somewhere so you can look it over after I've been reading it. But I want you to hear it. And if you can pledge this, I want us to pledge this together, especially over these next four weeks. We're going to commit to conversation. Instead of running, and being angry, we're going to lean in and talk. And we're going to learn more from the Holy Spirit than from each other, probably, but from each other. We're going to learn most by how we love. I pledge, number one, civility, to recognize the human dignity of those whom I disagree, treat others with respect, and rise above attacks when directed at me. I pledge clarity to root my political viewpoints in the gospel and well-formed conscience, which involves prayer, conversation, study, and listening. I'll stand up for my convictions and speak out when I witness language that disparages others' dignity, while also listening and seeking to understand others' experiences. And I pledge compassion to encourage, encounter others with a tone and posture which affirms that I honor the dignity of others and invite others to do the same. I will presume others' best intentions and listen to their stories with empathy. And I will strive to understand before seeking to be understood. Do you pledge? Let me try again. If you don't, then don't. Nobody will know but God. Do you pledge that? Then may it look like communion. May it look like that. That we would come and break bread with a bunch of misfits. 
bunch of messy people who think differently, but all want truth because truth is what's best because truth is God's. And truth comes in the image of God where our identity is rooted in him and nothing else. And it allows us to talk in a way that's loving and honoring. Would you stand with me? And can we speak Jesus? Can we speak Jesus over these next five weeks? Can we speak Jesus over those who think differently? Can we speak Jesus over the hurting and oppressed? Can we speak Jesus over those the enemy of our soul has bound, even some of us? Can we speak Jesus? Because we speak life when we speak Jesus. God, may we be an example of what it can mean to be together, to be in unity, even in difference, to love each other, even in the mess, to hold truth, not forcing it down someone's throat, but tenderly hold it. And God, let you, Holy Spirit, do the work of truth in us. We don't have to do that. We should stop doing that. May you do the work of truth as we hold it, and we will hold truth as uncomfortable as it gets. We will hold it because we love it, and we need it, and we celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you go, just want to say, because this is really, really important. Just because we define truth from God's word doesn't mean we're forcing it on you. Doesn't mean someone's going to follow you home and make you do it. Doesn't mean we're judging you. But we're going to hold it. We're going to ask God what we do with it. And we're going to pray that he takes it and brings it inside us and changes us. Can we do that? We'll do that. Love you. Thanks for being here this morning. See you next week. Thanks for spending time with the Hope Collective. If you appreciated this message, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast or share it with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review, which will help other listeners find us online. Thanks again for joining us.